welcome to church. Uh, if you're new uh, or joining us or visiting us, I want to especially extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, my name is Pastor Pete, and I'm the lead pastor of our church. Uh, look, we're going to look at um, a passage that we've actually gotten up to in our study of Matthew, um, but because it's such a, uh, a, a sensitive and important topic, the topic of divorce and remarriage, uh, I'm going to sort of preach a topical on that. So I'm not going to deal with every part of the passage that we just read. I really want to examine this passage in light of that topic, divorce and remarriage. Um, just some statistics as we begin um, on divorce. So in Australia, every third marriage ends in divorce. And in the last 20 years, Australians started to marry less and divorce more. About one third of children born today are born outside of marriage in Australia. Men are statistically more likely to die than divorce, but for women, they're more statistically likely to divorce than to die. Women file more divorce applications than men, and most men divorce at the age of 40 to 44. Women, though younger, at 35 to 39. Most of the divorces in Australia are granted in our state, in New South Wales, and divorced people have a higher chance of remarriage than those who are widowed. Nearly half of divorced people remarry. Now, they're just bare statistics, no judgment on them. But what it does show you at least is when it comes to the issue of divorce, this is something that everyone is touched by in some way. If it's not you, your family, it'll be your extended family. If it's not you and your extended family, it'll be your neighbors, your colleagues, the people you go to school with, the people you go to university with, okay? Everyone will know someone who's been touched by divorce. And this is a sensitive issue, and it is something that has touched many of us in our church community. And so I want to deal with it biblically, truthfully, but also sensitively and carefully. So why don't we pray and let's get into it. Father God, we know that when it comes to the issue of divorce, there's a lot of hurts, and it may be for some particularly triggering. We pray that through the emotions and the hurt, we don't want to dismiss them, Lord, but at the same time, we also want you to speak truth into them in an area where there's so much confusion and so much hurt. We see that your words, though it may not be easy to swallow sometimes, they are really good. So help us to see your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I've just decided to do this, uh, you know, just, we're going to have a Q&A. Is that okay, Matt? Can we have a Q&A? I just feel like with this one, you probably want to have a Q&A. Now, unfortunately, I didn't think of that before I started and did those slides. But um, if you want to, and if, I mean, if the back desk can do it quickly, feel free to put a slide up for us. Um, but it's going to be go.swec.com org.au slash Q&A, Q-A-N-D-A, okay? So go.swec.org.au slash Q&A. Um, so after the final song, I'll come back for some Q&A, like we did a couple of months ago with um, Invitation Month. So if you have any questions, it's anonymous, you can send questions in, um, and yeah, I'm happy to, to have a go at them. All right, let's go. Let's have a look at the passage. Um, so let's have a look at, sorry, I need to be able to click. Um, when it comes to the first point, which is on divorce, the Pharisees, in verse uh, 3, keep your Bibles open, Matthew 19, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and it says to test Jesus, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So we want to look at what the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day, what they thought about divorce. And there's a few points there. Notice, firstly, they focused on the grounds for divorce. Now, a little bit of background. 
there were uh, two schools of thinking amongst Jews, and basically, like today, it's the progressives and the conservatives, okay? So there was the progressive view when it came to divorce, known as the school of Hillel, and they thought, well, anyone could divorce, a man especially, could divorce for any and every reason. So if you marry someone and she didn't cook well, or she didn't dress well, or she gained a little bit of weight in childbirth, you could divorce her. That was the progressive view. Then there was a conservative view called the school of Shammai. Um, And they would say, no, the only ground for divorce is a grave offense, like adultery. All right? So conservative versus progressive. Now, the Pharisees, you see, they wanted to draw Jesus into this debate. And that's why they asked Jesus this question with a bit of a test to it. But then you notice, secondly, they made divorce a command. Look what it says, verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses command it? What do they mean by this? There's a background to this. Um, I want to show you a passage from Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament. And this is what they were thinking of when when they said Moses giving a command for a divorce certificate. So let's read it in context. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she'd been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay. So they read this passage, the Pharisees, Deuteronomy 24, and they see it there. Ha, look, Jesus, there is a command to issue a certificate. And their logic is this. Obviously, God accepts divorce, or he wouldn't have given us this command. So as long as you fulfill the command, you give the certificate of divorce, you can divorce with no regrets. That's their logic, you see? And you can almost see why they would reason that from a passage like this. But you see, the problem is this. They never really ask the question, is that what Deuteronomy 24 is really about? Is that why God gave these commands back in Deuteronomy? We'll look at that in a moment. And thirdly, you see that they treated divorce lightly. Now, whether you take the conservative or the progressive view, I mean, the fact that you are debating about the grounds of divorce means that you're thinking that divorce is an option. When you get married, you should always go into marriage with the option of divorce. You just got to figure out what the grounds are. Um, This was a bit like an ancient prenup, right? A prenuptial agreement. You know what that is? When two people, before they get married, write a contract and say, if if we divorce, here's how we're going to split. You know, they're already thinking about the grounds of divorce before you get into marriage. Now, Jesus, as he characteristically does, is going to really turn everything on its head. He's going to undermine all of that. And that's why after Jesus says his bit, which we'll come to in a moment, you see the disciples in verse 10, they're like, hey, Jesus, if this is the situation between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Okay, even Jesus' disciples as Jewish men, they had taken on this very light view of marriage and divorce. They're thinking, hey, if I can't marry with an out already built in, better not marry. All right, so that's the Pharisee and really the prevailing view. Now let's turn to what Jesus says. Um, If you remember all the way back um, in the famous Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus preaching in uh, in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew. We did that a couple of years ago. You'll notice that what Jesus did often 
was he said, you've heard it said, X and Y, you know, do not commit adultery, do not um, be angry and so on. Oh, sorry, do not murder. And then he will say, but I tell you. And, and the whole point of what Jesus kept doing in the Sermon on the Mount is to actually show us that when it comes to his people, you're not trying to look for loopholes, right, to lower the bar as low as possible and make sure that you just cross that. Oh, sorry, you just get under that bar, over that bar. Um, Jesus wanted maximum obedience. He wanted his people to see God's heart, see God's command, and not think, what is the minimum I need to do? He wants people to think, what is right at the heart of what God commanded? And why do I want to do what he commanded? And so that's what Jesus does that's really different. And so you'll notice, first of all, that Jesus, right? They're trying to draw Jesus into this debate. What are the grounds for divorce? What's acceptable, conservative or progressive? And Jesus says, Let's focus on the institution of marriage right at the beginning. And that's what he comes in in verse 3 to say. Look at it there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now notice Jesus' response. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus is not playing their game, is he? The focus, he's saying, it shouldn't be on the grounds of divorce. Whether you're strict about it or lax about it, whether you're conservative or progressive, the focus should be on how and why God designed marriage in the first place. And that's what Jesus talks about. And he reminds us, isn't it, how important this is, that marriage in the eyes of God. We didn't invent marriage. No culture invented marriage. Marriage is a God-given gift for humanity. It's part of the fabric of our createdness. Marriage, as far as God's concerned, is a two-become-one, a one-fleshness. So it's not something... So cultures... And governments can only recognize marriage. We cannot create marriage. We cannot alter marriage because it comes from the Creator Himself. Now, obviously, that has implications for lots of things, and this is not the time and the place to talk about them. But it does remind us that if you are married, right, if you are joined in marriage, this is not just a human institution. It's not just a piece of paper that you got right? You've been joined together by God. And this is not something that you and I should find reasons to separate. So if you're a married person, please do not forget your vows. Right? Whether you said them as a Christian or not, these vows matter to God because you've been joined by Him in His sight and you are one. And I want to say this even if you have a less than ideal marriage. Maybe you have a cold marriage, a boring marriage, a sexless, joyless marriage. Maybe your marriage currently is quite a lot of conflict, quite a lot of hurts. Now, I'm not talking about situations of abuse or adultery, we'll come to that later. But I think every marriage goes through seasons like this. But your marriage maybe, maybe from the beginning has been like this. And, 
And you look at others and you look in envy and you think, this is not my marriage. This is not what I pictured. Now, by, by all means, you want to work through those things, okay? And you may need help to work through those things. They shouldn't stay as they are, right? Marriage is not supposed to be terrible, cold, hurtful all the time. But regardless, I hope you see the importance of what God did for you when you came together as husband and wife. You are one flesh in the eyes of God. So this marriage vow that you made, however recent or however long, whether it was made in church or in front of a celebrant, it doesn't matter. These vows matter. They matter. All right? Let's be reminded of that. That's what marriage was designed for. But then also, you see, Jesus says, divorce is not a command. The Pharisees said, didn't Moses command? And Jesus says, actually, let's look at Deuteronomy, and I want to show you that your reading is wrong. Divorce is not a command, but a concession. And I want to show you that if you looked at Deuteronomy 24, and I've added a few things because actually it was part of the original, um, uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and it's a little bit more obvious in the Hebrew, but I've just highlighted for you that this whole passage is a bunch of ifs, and then only at the end do you get a then. And you need to see that because then you'll see what Moses was actually on about, all right? And you're not going to read it incorrectly and out of context. So let, let's have a look. This is what Moses actually said. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and if he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from her house, his house, and if after she leaves, leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and if her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then... Her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she'd been defiled. Do you see? What's the focus of this passage? It's not all the if bits. It's the then bit. Right? You can't read this passage and say, oh, look, it talks about a man who finds a woman indecent and sends her away. That means we're allowed to do that. Or it writes about, Moses talks about a certificate of divorce. That means we're allowed to do that in any situation. No, no, no. There's a string of ifs that lead to one then. The focus is not on the divorce, but on what happens in verse 4. If a man does all of this to his first wife and he treats divorce so lightly that he'll just leave a woman that want her back later on because the fling didn't work out. That's what the concession was for. That's what this whole passage is about. And you've got to see in the ancient world, a very patriarchal world, this is actually God trying to protect what little rights women had. You got that? This is actually God trying to protect the rights of women. Because in this case, read all the ifs. She is a victim, isn't she? Her husband abandons her. Which means in the ancient world, she has no means of supporting herself. So how could she find another husband? And she's now also got a stigma attached to her. Oh, you've been dumped by a husband. Surely you're an adulteress. Who's going to marry her now? And so that's why the certificate of divorce needs to be there. The certificate ensures that she has prospects because the certificate would say something like, she has been released from her first marriage and it's not because of adultery. 
Because in Moses' day, by the way, adultery carried a death sentence. We won't go into that in a moment, but you know, in that context in ancient Israel, of course it's not adultery, because if it was adultery, she'd be in a lot of trouble. So we're talking about a situation where she's been divorced lightly. She needs to have a certificate of divorce so that we can protect her, so that she has prospects of remarriage, so that she doesn't have the stigma of adulteress. In other words, God's laws in the Old Testament come because we live in a broken world. A broken world where divorce is not ideal, but it does happen. Where marriages are supposed to stay together, but a world where marriages do break down. And in that situation, God is saying, here is how you minimize abuse. For women especially. How you minimize women being taken advantage of. Yeah? See how it works? And that's why Jesus says back in Matthew 19, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. Okay? God did not design marriage in the beginning, right in the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden, before sin entered the world. He didn't design marriage to end like that with divorce like an option. But because we live on the other side of the Garden of Eden, He allows it in a broken world because we live on this side, because of our own sinfulness and hard-heartedness. And so when divorce does happen, God wants to protect and minimize sin. So he wants to protect us and minimize sin and damage, and especially the disadvantaged party, which almost always were women. Okay? So now we come back to Jesus' teaching about divorce in Matthew 19. And I also want to show you Matthew 5, because he actually talked about divorce uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount. All right? So, back in Matthew 5, and you kind of, all that Jesus says about divorce, you kind of want to take Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And so we're going to read Matthew 5. Um, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, right? Read adultery. Causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is a little bit puzzling because Jesus seems to be saying, if you divorce a woman, you make her an adulteress. Isn't she already the victim? Well, what's he saying? Well, again, come back to what we just looked at, both in Matthew 19 and in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus is not making divorce okay. He is saying that the reasons why the Pharisees used to make divorce okay well, those reasons are good enough. They're not okay. You see, remember the Pharisees saying, their attitude is, I can divorce for any reason, really, as long as I send a certificate of divorce. And once I do that, I wash my hands clean, my responsibility is over, I can move on and marry someone else. That's their attitude. And Jesus here in Matthew 5 is saying, hey, you know what? If you do that, you might think you wash your hands clean, but you're still attaching a stigma of adulteress to the woman you divorced. And that's why he here in Matthew 5 emphasizes, if you divorce a woman, send her a certificate, right? You make her an adulteress because that's what everyone's going to be thinking. You've divorced her lightly. You've left her high and dry. And even though Moses gave the concession of certificate of divorce, it's not that easy in the eyes of society in a patriarchal, male-dominated, judgmental society. You still are attaching a stigma of adulteress on her. So you don't wash your hands of responsibility. You've made her an adulteress. And anyone that marries her, right, it's like they've married an adulteress too. 
That's, that's Jesus' point. Okay? And of course, the only exception is, of course, if she really was an adulteress. That, that's what he means by the exception clause, yeah? If you divorce a woman, send her a certificate, but she really did commit adultery, well, that is the only situation where, you know, your hands are sort of clean. Do, do you know what I mean? Because she actually is an adulteress. But you do that for any other reason, and you don't remove your responsibility. You've actually disadvantaged her. You've made her an adulteress. You've made every single marriage she has uh, from that point onwards something that comes with a stigma. But, of course, Jesus also says the flip side. It's not just what you've done to the woman. Okay, if you think that you can divorce a woman, fancy another, right? So you go with it. But you're afraid of adultery laws, so you divorce, send a certificate, remarry. Jesus says back in Matthew 19, Right, the flip side as well. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for adultery, marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman commits adultery. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, God has a conception. He does allow divorce because we live in a sinful world. We live in a broken world. But if you use this concession lightly in order to give yourself a good, conscience-free excuse to divorce, then that's just not going to work in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus is saying. All right? So hopefully you've understood Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 on the issue of divorce a little bit better. Let me just quickly summarize. When it comes to divorce, this is what the Bible is saying. Number one, don't marry with the thought of divorce. Okay, whether you're married now, intend to be married, divorce should not even be in your mind as a possibility. Regardless of what happens, and I will talk about a couple of exceptions in a moment, but it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be going in with a, with a prenuptial agreement, uh, whether in paper or in your mind, okay? A prenuptial agreement basically dooms a marriage because already you go into marriage thinking we can split up. Secondly, repent and reconcile. There are many times when marriage vows are broken. And we're not just talking about adultery in action, but of course, Jesus says, if you look at another person who's not your spouse lustfully, you've committed adultery with them in your mind. So adultery in thought, that is a break of covenant. And I don't know any married person who hasn't done that. And it's not just when you break it with sexual unfaithfulness, but there's emotional unfaithfulness too. And in fact, anytime you don't love and honor and protect the other person like you promised, in sickness, in health, for richer, for poorer, right? All of those times we've broken marriage vows. I've been married 23 years and there's so many times I've not loved and protected and honored Karen above myself like I promised to. See, when there is a breach of covenant marriage vows, Christians are to seek for yourself and for the other person confession of sin, repentance, turning away from sin, seeking forgiveness, making reparations when possible, and seeking reconciliation. That is the Christian way. That is the Jesus way. That is the gospel way, isn't it? When sin has been committed, we confess, we repent, and we seek reconciliation. That is what we do every week, and that's why we do confession in the service. And, and regardless of the sin, if it is genuine repentance... Repentance isn't just feeling sorry, by the way. Repentance is a turning away, taking action. And usually in the case of marriage repentance, getting help, 
having accountability. But if it is genuine repentance, there must be forgiveness and reconciliation and healing. Now, I do want to stress, though, we're talking about real repentance. See, a lot of times there's fake repentance or partial repentance. So this is not the abuser who keeps saying sorry, but keeps the abuse secret, unwilling to do anything really about it. Not wanting to go to counseling, not seeking if they're a Christian, not seeking help from the Christian community. That's not repentance. That's feeling sorry, but not doing anything about it. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. Repentance has to be genuine, and it has to take action, and you're going to get help, and you're going to repair the wrong as much as possible. What if you're the victim, and the other person needs to repent, has sinned against you? That's really hard, isn't it? Can I invite you to use your church community to help bring the other person to repentance? Because you can't do it on your own, right? But that's the thing. It's got to be genuine. But if it is genuine, and when it is genuine, God calls us to reconcile, to patch up even very broken marriages. Thirdly, God permits divorce when reconciliation is impossible. This is a broken world. And people's hearts can be hardened. Even good Christian people can suffer in this way. And the other person, even with church counsel or church discipline, can still refuse to properly repent. We see that a lot. And in those cases, you also need to know that God is gracious and kind. He does permit divorce when sin and hurt has no human solution. And God wants to minimize sin and hurt because there are some unrepentant sins that make marriages impossible to keep because it is dangerous to stay physically, emotionally, mentally, because it has so severed the one fleshness that without real repentance and therefore real reconciliation, it's actually safer and better to end it. God allows that. So with the risk of oversimplification, there are basically, I think in the biblical view, three primary reasons of unrepentant sin where divorce is allowed. And they all start with A. Okay? And I come at it carefully because you're not supposed to read these and think, oh, now I have the grounds for divorce. (laughs) No, no, no. This is a concession because God understands. But the three A's are this. Adultery, abuse, And thirdly, abandonment. Adultery, abuse, and abandonment. And I won't flesh out all of those. Feel free to ask it in question time. Go.swec.org.au slash Q&A. But if you are a person who is suffering as a victim of unrepentant forms of this, your spouse is adulterous, is abusive, has abandoned you, and if you've tried all that you humanly can to reconcile, counseling, help, but it still doesn't work out, well, God says you don't have to remain trapped and you don't have to remain, especially in the cases of abuse, in a dangerous situation. All right? And by the way, abandonment can also be this. The other person has already started divorce proceedings in spite of you because that's actually possible in Australia. Okay? You're trying to hold the marriage together. They've said, I'm out. 
That's a form of abandonment. If you're in that situation, or adultery or abuse, right, and you're the victim, you are not called by God to have to stay together when there is no repentance or reconciliation. But then it leads to number four, only the victim should initiate divorce. That's implied, isn't it? Right? If you're the perpetrator, you're the one who's committed adultery, you're the abusive one, you're the one who's abandoned, right? You don't get to, in Jesus' eyes anyway, you don't get to initiate divorce, wash your hands clean of it. Now, the law in Australia is different. Of course, there's something called no-fault divorce, and I don't want to debate the merits of that. But in Australia, if one party files for divorce, it'll happen eventually. In God's eyes, it's not acceptable if you are the perpetrator of adultery, abandonment, or abuse, because you just want a new partner. You just want to get out. In God's eyes, that doesn't work. Number five, though, really important, God forgives the repentant divorcee. See, if you're here and you're like, but what if I'm already divorced in my second marriage? And what if the grounds for divorce wasn't right? Now, I've, now I hear God's word and I didn't know this, or maybe I did know it, but Right? What if I did it wrong? And now, what if I did, do recognize now I did it, did it wrong? Uh, but now I'm now remarried or, or I've already become divorced. Should I divorce again or sh- should I go back to my first spouse? What if they've already remarried? What, what do I do then? Well, please know this that there is forgiveness for sin. No matter what sin it is, when we repent and trust in Jesus. See, even if your divorce was wrong in the first place, even if your subsequent remarriages was wrong, It's not too late to admit that to God, to confess it, even confess it to your first spouse if it's appropriate. Seek forgiveness, right? And know this, God is not calling you to make two wrongs a right, okay? So if you're already divorced, and especially if you've remarried, you can't go back to your original spouse, right? Don't try and make two wrongs a right. But God does forgive the repentant divorcee. Okay, let's go to remarriage really quickly. Um, This is not easy, and there are disagreements here amongst Christians. Um, But let me just summarize what I think um, the Bible is saying. Firstly, there are times when, in God's eyes, remarriage should not be permitted. Remarriage is not permitted, again, when you've been the unfaithful one, you've caused a divorce, um, right, for for wrong reasons, Um, and especially if it's to remarry or marry the person that you've been unfaithful with, okay? Okay. That is not grounds for remarriage. And the Bible would say, if you've been the one committing adultery, and especially if you're now repentant, um, remarriage is not permitted for you. I think that's what God is saying. When remarriage is permitted, remarriage is permitted when you have been the victim of a divorce. Right? You, you're not the one who's been unfaithful. You haven't pursued divorce. You haven't, you're the one who's been uh, abused. And you've tried unsuccessfully to pursue reconciliation. I do believe that the Bible gives you grounds to remarry and in good conscience. Um, We won't read this passage, but 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the reasons why I do believe that um, if you have been, in this case, abandoned by a non-believing spouse, right at the end, see the bit that's highlighted? A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. I think Jesus is saying, I think Paul is saying, you're not bound as in you are free to remarry. I think that's what he's saying, okay? That's all I'm going to say about remarriage. Feel free to ask questions. Um, But let me conclude. Um, As I started with, 
Uh, this is a difficult topic because it touches every single one of us in some way, and some here it will touch very personally. And here's the thing, right? Divorcees tend to avoid church. And I understand why, but I think that shouldn't be the case. Because if the statistics are one in three marriages end in divorce out there, then there should be a much higher proportion of people in here who've experienced divorce. Now, I'm not saying, oh, yay, one in three of us should get divorced. Okay, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, why isn't there, why aren't churches a community where those who have been divorced, who actually need grace and healing, why aren't we the community here to give it? Right? And if we are, and we are a safe space for people who've had the grief of divorce, for whatever reason, if we're to be that safe space, then really we should see that there are a lot of people in churches receiving grace and community who have been divorced. Right? That, that should be at least the case. And it's because ultimately we believe the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The good news is one of grace. And the gospel is about God who actually... Hello, guys. How did, how did they escape? Do you guys want to go around? Go and find your mommy and daddy. Oh, they're coming. I'll just open the door for them. Hello. Okay, guys, come over here. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, they're there. They're there now. They're, they're, play, they're playing a game now. I think, I think we'll blame this on Anson because he made them super. And now they're running around like little superheroes. Okay, let me come back. We, we love interruptions, by the way, at church when it's kids, because we love kids. We really do. Um, okay, um, where am I up to? Yes, God is ultimately the divorcee. Did you know that in the Bible, in Old Testament books like Hosea and Ezekiel, it pictures God as the faithful husband who's been repeatedly cheated on by his unfaithful people. Out of his love, though, he still pursues them, he still loves them. And he does this to the extent of coming and dying for sinful and unfaithful people. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. He does that because he wants to reconcile us, bring us back to himself. And here's the reason why there is forgiveness from God. There is grace even in the sin of divorce and even in wrongful remarriage. Because Jesus died to pay for all of our sins. That's why forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is real, right? And God is the ultimate reconciler, and He knows what it's like to have been cheated on. But He does everything He can, lays down His own life for His people so that they might be brought back. See, this is why also in a difficult marriage, as hard as it is, you need to, as much as possible, keep seeking repentance and reconciliation because Jesus died to reconcile even the worst of sinners. And if you are suffering the wounds of a broken marriage and divorce, Jesus welcomes you to find him. And God is gracious and compassionate and he forgives. He offers grace. He wants to bring you emotional healing. 
And church, people of God, we can really help in that, can't we? We can really help by firstly being a community of grace and acceptance for divorcees. Now, we're not talking about condoning sin where sin has been committed, but offering true grace and forgiveness when there is repentance. And of course, we can be a people that value grace to such a degree that rather than jump to divorce in any and every situation, which is kind of what the Pharisees wanted to do, or kind of like what our world does, we can actually show how love can truly conquer all. Right? Both as a church community, embracing those who are divorced, as well as people ourselves who may be in difficult relational situations. Don't forget there's questions, so please feel free to um, go online, go.swec.org.au slash Q&A. But let me pray, we'll get ready to sing, and then I'll come back in a moment for some question time. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we wrestle with the hard topic of divorce, even as we process some of this now, help us firstly to understand your love for us, your grace to us, your mercy to us, that you would die for us that you would lay down your life even though you were the aggrieved one, even though you were the hurt one. And may grace really melt us and change us in whatever situation we're in, whether we are helping those going through difficult relationships, divorces even, or we ourselves have been or are going through them. Help us to experience your grace. Help us to experience your healing. And help us to be the hands and feet and the lips that offer grace and healing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.